0: Welcome to Great Commission Conversations, a program where we engage in conversation with Bible-believing Christian workers who are serious about getting the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, missionary to Zimbabwe, Africa, sent out of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. Papua New Guinea is one country where God has used some independent Baptist missionaries in a mighty, mighty way. And that's at least one of the reasons that we've given that particular field a good bit of attention on the podcast here. That includes interviews with Jason Russell, Chad Wells, and more recently, Brad Wells. In interacting with that generation of missionaries, the name Ted Mullins comes up rather frequently. Brother Mullins was among an earlier generation of pioneering missionaries in the country of Papua New Guinea whom God used in a great way. While in a missions conference at Shady Acres Baptist Church in Houston, Texas, I had an opportunity to sit down with Brother Mullins and talk to him about his ministry over the course of more than 28 years there in New Guinea. I set out to speak with Brother Mullins about pioneering, which is largely what he was engaged in there in New Guinea over the course of nearly three decades. We did address this subject, and Brother Mullins provides some helpful insights into pioneering a work in a tribal setting like that in which he labored in the mountains and swamps of New Guinea. But perhaps more than this, the theme of my conversation had to do with following the leadership of the Lord, or perhaps better yet, staying out of the Lord's way, as God did an exceptional work at a particular time and among a particular people whom he had specially prepared for that work. I trust you will enjoy the following interview with a modern-day missionary hero. With that introduction, let's jump into the conversation with Brother Ted Mullins. Brother Mullins, there are a lot of different approaches and emphases when it comes to mission work, but Paul's emphasis was pioneering, striving to preach the gospel where Christ was not named and i want to talk to you a little bit about pioneering today that was a bit like your ministry over the course of 28 years in new guinea but of course this uh this starts well before your deployment to new guinea uh, when the lord saved you so tell us a little bit about how you came to christ and then of course uh would love to hear about how the lord dealt with you about the
1: field of new guinea okay um i got saved march the 7th uh 1978 uh, in my living room uh, a fellow at work had witnessed to me and and uh, uh god was convicted me about that he had witnessed to me and i couldn't hardly sleep and about had a fight with him He uh, came to work one day and asked me the question uh, if you died tonight where would you spend eternity and i got mad at him and threw my gloves on the floor and was ready to fight with him and And, uh, I said, Curtis, I said, you're not hanging my soul on your belt. And and he said, boy, you heathen are touching on Monday morning, aren't you? And, and so anyway, I, I walked away and got away from him, but I couldn't get away from God and, uh, went home. My wife and I were having trouble and, and, uh, uh, had a one son and, and, uh, he was just a baby, and, and anyway, uh, long story short, somebody gave her a book on the late great planet Earth, so she was under conviction. I was under conviction, and we're having marital problems. So we, in desperation, we went to a church, and we went because there was no snow in the parking lot, and uh, uh, that's how we chose the church—real spiritual choice. <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, they thought I was the pastor when I, or the preacher when I walked in because I had a suit and a tie and and a Bible under my arm. But the pastor came on Tuesday night and through the snow and uh, sat down with us, and and, uh, I asked him, you know, how do I get saved? And so my wife and I that night, both of us, uh, got on Mm -hmm. our knees and repented of our sins and asked Christ to save us. And so life changed, and we decided that we were uh, uh, going to get in. If we got in, if we're going to do this, if Christianity is real, Amen. then you need to not play with it, but do it right. So we got involved in the church, um, tithing and witnessing and outreach and all the different things, working with the youth and helping the Sunday school class and all that kind of thing. And uh, God started uh, uh moving in our life and, and uh, uh, our life changed lifestyle changed our family some of them were happy some of them backed up a bit you know I went to my dad's house and uh, he reached in my pocket he thought I had a pack of cigarettes in there and he pulled it out and it's a New Testament he said what is that <laughs> I said it's a Bible I got saved and he said you'll get over it <laughs> uh, well I never amen. did get over it amen um uh, And later on, at age 68, my dad got saved, finally. Wow. But uh, anyway, uh, made some friends, and I had a friend that was uh, in New Tribes, and he was in Brazil, serving as a missionary in Manaus, Brazil. So we were good friends. I had my life all planned out, though. God called me to preach. And uh, I was, at that point, we had moved, and I was going to an independent Baptist church. And they had a parsonage next door with a white picket fence, and they had a van with the church name on it. Man, that was my dream. This is what I want to do. I want to pastor a little church in the country somewhere. So I had my life planned out, and, and um, Scott Weaver was the, uh, my missionary friend. and uh, He sent me, uh, subscribed my name to Brown Gold Magazine which is a New Tribes magazine that they print. And uh, I got one, and um, there was the back page, inside the back page, there was a a story, and it was called A Ridge Too Far, written by a man named Ted Fitzgerald, who was a New Tribes missionary in New Guinea. And uh, the story, the article that he wrote was, there are people that live on a ridge, and it's too far to evangelize comfortably. You can't send them a track. You can't mail them a cassette tape in those days. Uh, They can't mail them, but they can't read it. You have to go live among them, learn their language, and preach the gospel. And he asked the question, uh, would you pray that God would send forth laborers, raise up, you know, uh, laborers for this harvest? And so I was in my last year of Bible school up in Ohio and, you know, Third-year Bible students, man, we we know everything. We're so spiritual. (laughs) So it was 5 o'clock in the morning. I was having my devotions before I went to work, and I got on my knees, and I said, God, I said, "Uh, raise up laborers for this work in New Guinea. And I actually called the names of three men that I went to Bible school with, Uh, Kevin Kendall, Doug Schwatterer, and Dick Harrelson. I said, God, they would be great missionaries in New Guinea. And so, you know, I did a spiritual thing in Jesus' name, amen, and went to work. So I'm working away, and and I'm thinking about this thing, you know. And I said, God, they'd make good missionaries. And the Spirit of God kind of spoke to my heart. You know, I don't want them. I want you. Wow. And I thought God had just made his first mistake. I really did. (laughs) And so I quoted Bible to him. I said, God, you know, man can't take care of his family. He's worse than an infidel. My wife has a back problem. My son has a severe eye problem. And I said, God, I can't take care of them in New Guinea. And he said, I can. I can. So then, you know, you, you run out of places to hide. So I thought the thing, and and uh, uh, Scott went back to Brazil, and we were corresponding through letters. And, and uh, so I said, God, here's what I'll do. Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea is on the same line of longitude is it longitude or latitude? Anyway as Manaus, Brazil. So I said, it's tribal work jungle, same place no worries, Scott I'll go work with Scott I'll do that. And so they were going to ordain me as a missionary to Brazil. So my pastor at the time uh, he had Jim White signed up to preach my ordination and he got stuck in England his uh, plane, missed his plane, whatever. Uh, so uh, the pastor called me and he said, "Brother Greg Gestep is going to preach your ordination." And as I was putting that phone down, I mean, that quick, God said, "You can have a church with a parsonage, you can go to Brazil, but if you're going with me, I'm going to New Guinea." Yeah, so I had to make a decision, and I did. And I said, "Okay, God, I'll go." So I set my wife down, and I said, "Got something to tell you." And I said, "I believe God wants us in Papua New Guinea." And she said, "Where in the world's that?" I said, "Oh, you'll love it. Nice beaches, <laughs> sandy beaches, you know, palm trees, the whole deal." And there are sandy beaches and palm trees in New Guinea, but they're just not in the swamp and in the mountains where we were. But at any rate, and she said, well, if that's where God wants you, then that's where we need to be. Wow. So uh, that's how I got there and never been there before, didn't do a survey trip, surrendered, raised my support, and uh, a year and a half, two years, and I was there.
0: Wow. Now I recognize two of those names of the of the men that you were enrolled in Bible school with. Uh, I didn't. I don't know the first gentleman, but two of those guys did end up on the mission field, and one of them ended up in New Guinea. I think isn't that right?
1: Two of them, Kevin Kendall, okay. Dick okay. Harrelson, ended up okay. in New Guinea. Doug Swatter, he backslid went to Spain.
0: So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Amen. So take us. <laughs> this is a. Uh, the way the Lord dealt with you is such a—it's uh, a—it's a unique thing nowadays. No survey trip, um, just surrender, load, and go. After raising some support, so take us back if you would to your introduction to Papua New Guinea. How did that work when you got there with your with your family?
1: Well, first of all, I left General Motors. Fifteen years at General Motors, and. Wow her family all worked for GM my family all worked for GM and I said you guys are you're crazy you said you'll starve to death and I said well if God's not God you're right bought the tickets got on the airplane and landed in Port Moresby and on the tarmac it was about 110 degrees and those were the days before they had the, the walkway that come out you know you had to come down the ladder come down the steps and walk across Oh, (laughs) smelled so bad and that heat coming up and People talking in a language <laughs> I didn't understand, and I just thought to myself, "What in the world have you done? You have ruined your life." You know, and, I, and I'm walking through that, and I couldn't understand anybody, and uh, immigration, and and even though they were speaking English with an accent, you know, I couldn't understand it, and uh, so we muddled through, and I the fellow that sponsored me into the country was supposed to be there to meet me but before I got there he left and went back to America <laughs> oh no so it, it was funny uh, because he, he told me he said now nah, you be careful at the airport because he said they'll try to steal your luggage well they didn't in the capital but going to Mount Hagen which is where we had to fly into they take a forklift and they unload your luggage, it's just on a skia, the pallet. And they set it down, and it's your worry. You know, you've got to get the root in there and <laughs> dig it out yourself. So, my son Jeremy, who was 10 years old at the time, was behind me, and I said, Now, Jeremy, I said, I'm going to pull these out, and I said, You get them and roll them over by mom. He said, Okay. So, I was pulling them out, and Jeremy was taking it over, and I got the second one, and this national guy was trying to get it and I said no that's mine and and he was talking to me but he couldn't speak English and so we're resting over this suitcase and finally another guy came up and he said uh, we're from the Mount Hagen Baptist Temple we're here to help you with your luggage <laughs> <laughs> so anyway uh, it was uh, a learning experience to say the least uh because everything's new you know as a missionary you go into a new country and it's like National Geographic you know you, sure uh, the sky's bluer and, and and you're listening to all the different uh, uh, dialects there there's 806 dialects in New Guinea you know they weren't all there at the airport the people were talking in their own dialect and and then you go to the outdoor market and see all the fruit and it's it's just it's, it's interesting Sure. Uh, so, you know, this is before the new wears off. You know, they had to get used to me just as much as I had to get used to them. Sure. And so uh, the transition was a little rough because, you know, I didn't have an experience. I was green as grass. Uh, but uh, the New Guinea people suffered through me, and I <laughs> suffered through them, and we got to, to know each other. But, it, you know, it's exciting to, uh, to me because I'm interested in culture and and how people live and what they do and you know you just learn from your mistakes and laugh at yourself and get up and go on you know hopefully that's not so bad
0: so how did you know that it was in the western highlands that the lord wanted you to to work and minister how did you get from port Moresby to mount Hagen
1: and then ultimately to the rural area that's where my sponsor was okay so uh, that's why I went to Mount Hagen. This missionary was supposed to teach me what I was supposed to know. Um, <laughs> the
0: missionary that wasn't there. Right.
1: right. Jerry Thomas was a great guy, <laughs> but he just had to go home for some reason, and so he wasn't there. Um, so I, I arrived on Saturday. and You know, it's, it's the other side of the world, so you don't know what day it is. And, <laughs> finally the national pastor stopped by and he shook my hand and he was educated fellow he said i'm glad you're here thank you for coming i'd like you to preach tomorrow (laughs) well you know how do you preach to these people so i just pulled a little sugar stick you know out of my deputation messages and uh, preached on serving god and uh, it was a it was different. They, they used the, the old scout hall in Mount Hagen as the church. They really didn't have their own building. And so the, it didn't have any chairs in it, so people sat on the floor. Uh, but at any rate, I, at the end of the message, I gave an invitation, and a young man walked up, and, and I shook his hand, and, and uh, uh, I said, what are you here for? And he said, I'm here to talk to you. He said, I'm saved. I got saved down on the coast. But he said, my people are lost, and I'm burdened for my village. Would you go back and have a look at our village? and Because we need a missionary. Wow. So uh, I had been warned about professional pastors. They want money, so they ask you to come. You have know, motive. You know, you, you're dealing mm-hmm. with motive. Sure. And so I thought that's what this was, so I put him off. I said, I don't have any transportation. I don't, you know, I don't have a way to get back there. And I said, how far is it? And, and so in, in the word for not very far is close to, close to. I said, okay. So I put him off and put him off, and, and he would ask me every day. You know, day. I'd see him in town, and he said, brother, when are we going? When are we going? I said, look, when I get a vehicle, we'll go. And finally, I went to a government auction and I bought this old uh, Land Cruiser pickup truck, four-wheel drive that the government had beat to death. And then I got it um, and uh, finally got it running. He said, okay, brother, we got, a, we got a vehicle now. Let's go. And so we loaded up. And, and in those days, because there wasn't much of a road or a bush track back there, uh, it took a long, took hours and hours and hours. And I'd stop, and I said, brother, which way? And he said, go up here and and uh, turn left as hand kites, you know. And, and so I'd looked at it. He said, that way, you know. So uh, I would turn. I said, now, how far? He said, oh, am I close to? I'm almost there. We're almost there. I drove another couple hours and then come up to a junction. I said, which way? And he said, he said uh, that way. And I said, how far? He said, oh, we're almost there. <laughs> and so, I don't know, it was five or six hours later, we finally got to Pangia Station. That's where Chad lives right now. Right. And I, he said, this is Pangia." I said, great, where do you live? He said, no, 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 not here. I, we live in two hours or, it's only 11, seriously, it's only 11 kilometers. But it took three or four hours to get there. Oh, wow. And uh, so he said, "Any close to?" <laughs> anyway, we got there and... and uh, you know people surrounding the truck and they're all jabbering in the talk place and the the, the, the dialect and I couldn't understand a the word they were saying and and my son uh, had blonde hair but it, it was summertime so it was all he was almost white because he was outside all the time and so they were coming up to him and feeling his hair and, and, and uh, talking. And I said, what'd they say? And they said, well, he has hair like a possum because it's straight, you know, and, uh, rubbing the skin and that kind of stuff. So, uh, they said, we want to, want you to come and be our missionary. We want to show you a piece of land. And we walked down the hill from the village and they said, uh, this is the place. And, uh, it was down, part of it was swampy and, and, uh, a uh, fella came and we measured it with a rope a 15 foot rope that's all i had didn't have a tape measure so we measured it with a rope and and uh, this fella came up and and he had a hole through his nose didn't have anything in it but he had an axe in his hand and he was right in my face and he was talking loud and shaking that axe and he had a bow in the other hand and and uh I told my wife, I said, get Jeremy close. We might have to get out of here. And Brother John, who was with me, he said, brother, don't worry. He likes you. I said, man, <laughs> I hate to see it if he didn't like me. My goodness. Uh, so uh, I said, okay, this is the place. All right, we'll pray about it. So we got in the truck and drove all the way back to town. And we got there. We were dead tired, been driving for hours and hours and hours. And And, and I told my wife, I said, y'all go to bed and, and I went into a room by myself, and I got on my knees, and I said, Oh, God, please don't see me. <laughs> well, you know how spiritual missionaries are. Uh, because I was afraid. I said, I can't do this. You know, I, I can't speak that language, and I'm, I, I didn't want to admit it, but I was afraid of these people. And sometimes, you know, it takes a long time to get an answer. God said, That's just where I want you, <laughs> right there. So. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, that's a kind of a long, drawn-out thing, but that's how no. I got where I was going.
0: Now, what were, what did those people? What's the tribal group? What were those people? Was, those were the Weeder tribe. The Weeder tribe. They're the same ones yeah, that Chad same. works with, right? Okay. Yeah. So that's that's pretty pretty seriously primitive conditions that you were living in.
1: Yeah, we started out in a tent. Uh, I lived in a twelve by twelve tent for till I get a a, a little. In American terms, a little shack built. I had some guys weave some walls. It turned out to be about, uh, let's see, I think it was like 12 by 16, what you'd call a shed in your backyard here. <laughs> um, and I put a couple pieces of clear roofing iron, roofing on it, uh, so I could get some light inside. Had a dirt floor, uh, no water, uh, no way, there's just one room, and we had three. I had taken some army cots. I had three army cots and a a little tiny table in the back where we could eat, and that was it. Wow. So um, we had this idea, or I did, that I had to live just like the people did. And so uh, we went from that, that had a little, that had a tin roof on it. We went to that, we built a 24 by 24 grass roofed house. And we lived in there. It still didn't have any floor, didn't have any windows in it, no water. Um, got water from the creek and, 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 and that. And finally, uh, Brother John, the national guy I was working with, I said, John, I said, do you think these people would be offended if I built a better house? And they, he said, no, brother, we would love it. He said, the Catholics say you've got a rubbish missionary. He lives just like you do. <laughs> wow. I said, man, why didn't you tell me that two years ago? <laughs> you know. Uh, so I built a a, a a bigger house with a tin roof on it. It was, still had the woven mat walls. And uh, I did put... Uh, Tank on the top of the roof, and I collected rainwater in a bigger tank on the ground and pumped it up there, and and so that made gravity flow running water in the house. So it was an upgrade. Oh sure, yeah. So, so what was it
0: like um, engaging these folks in gospel ministry? How did you go about getting
1: started in evangelizing the people? I just started going around and meeting the people, and uh, I would hold services on Sunday, and first Sunday probably 20 people came and uh, you know they were there to hear the gospel they were there to see this new white man you know that's and, and personally I don't care why they come to church sure. as long as they come sure. uh, uh, so uh, we started seeing people saved and the greatest witness in the world is the changed lives of these converts uh, they were into Catholicism and it won't change your life there's no i mean there's there there's a lot of rules and regulations but there's no change there's no spirit of god to to uh, initiate change in the life so um people started getting saved and and we started praying for people in the village and and uh, i'd say oh you know wednesday night prayer meeting i said okay uh, who you want to see saved and they said well and they called the name of somebody, really somebody rough in the village. And I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want everybody to pray for that individual. And every time you see them, tell them, I'm praying for you to get saved. Ooh. And you have to understand village life is an enclosed society, they're not outsiders. And because they live in a, what, what we call a house line, the houses are close, they're just bush houses with, with a grass roof. And so if you beat your kid in house number one, house number 10 hears it. I mean, they know everything that's going on, and you see them all day long, you know, and you're interacting because uh, you're way back in the tribe, and there are no outsiders there. So uh, the change becomes evident, and, you know, you get opposition. Um, I had a lady... Uh, that got saved an older woman and and she was going to the market on Saturday and which was a pretty good long walk up the mountain and she slipped and fell and hurt her knee and went to the clinic and they told her they said that's your punishment for going to the Baptist church. Oh wow! So you know we had that and and uh, some other physical altercation not with me but with my my boys that I was training and uh, but. Uh, the, the, again, people will get saved, and they said, "Man, that guy's. There's something different about him now." Amen. You know. So that was the that was the greatest witness there was. Plus the fact that it was just God. God had. Let me tell you the story. Please do. We were having a Bible study at my house one time, and and I went out to the road to do something. Because people are coming. I was just telling them, come on in. And Brother John, the national guy, was there with my wife and and son. And, and uh, I had talked to him. I said, I'm, I'm thinking about going up here at the top of the mountain to Mata Pini to start another church. And uh, my wife was talking to him about that. And he said, we can't go. And she said, well, why can't we go? She said, you are a missionary. You're not their missionary. You are a missionary. Ooh. And so the illustration he gave us, he said, you know, like we own a pig. You know, we, we put a stake in the ground. We, we tie his leg with a rope, and we put that rope to the stake, and, and so he's ours. And so you're our missionary. And uh, so he said, we prayed for you, and God gave us you. And she said, when did you start praying? And they said, number 10 moon, 1982. That's October 1982. We got out that brown-gold magazine that I'd read that story. That was October, 1982. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, man. And, and, and it's, it's exciting even today, to, you know, just to, to uh, refresh my memory on that. <laughs> because you think about the God of heaven hearing wow. two or three bush people in the middle of the mountains of New Guinea they put. It's like a. It's like a, a triangle. Yeah. Their prayers are going up, and God, come down, touch my heart. I want you
0: like Cornelius and Peter. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, sir. So, uh, that confirmed that I was in the right place. I yeah. And then, so when the opposition came. You know, if you know that you're in the will of God, you know you're doing right, you know you're doing the right thing and, and preaching the gospel and serving God, then you can stand up to the opposition. Amen. So that really got us through. So anyway, that's, that's how we started and, and just preaching just simple salvation messages. Remember the cartoon character, Mr. Magoo, the blind guy? Uh, And he would walk in and bump into something. You know, I I was like that, except I was bumping into an apple tree and all the fruit fell off. (laughs) I mean, it was amazing. People getting saved one night. Eleven people walked the aisle. And when I went outside, I said, God, please slow down. I don't know what to do with all these people. Wow. And I don't know how he deals with you, but he just told me, just get out of the way. Amen. Just get out of the way. Let me work. And it, I, I, we, we had revival. Uh, I was back there seven years, and some guys came after me. There was revival in that place for about ten years straight. God wow. just, you know, planting churches and people getting saved and just. But it wasn't that I'm such a great missionary. It was that we have a great God and the gospel works. Sure.
0: And God did. It's, it's evident that God raised you up for such a time as that,
1: yeah, and, and yeah. for that
0: place. And really, that I guess that season in New Guinea, it was, a, it was a time where God used some independent Baptists to do a great work in the country of New Guinea. Uh, you mentioned those two other men that you were in school with, but uh, there were quite a few. And, and now... I guess, uh, uh, subsequent generation and, and headed into the third generation of laborers, yeah. independent Baptist laborers in that part of the world. How did you overcome, you described um, John there having a sort of possessiveness about you as their mis- missionary, but you eventually did branch out and were involved in church planning in a in a number of different places.
1: We started seven churches the first three years. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, uh, I I've, I've just set him down and said brother John this is how it works okay I, I'm your missionary yes but I'm a missionary to your people and he, John was a, a, a national fellow but he's really really sharp and he was great and doing personal work he's one more people to Christ than I've ever thought about and so he finally got it and uh, so my relationship with John, I tried to get a relationship like Paul and Timothy. And I said, John, I said, I'm new here, man. I said, no, because a lot of of times, you know, if you're a white man, they don't want to talk to you. They're kind of afraid. I said, look, don't let me make a big error here culturally. I said, if there's a better way, uh, uh, if I ought not say something or do a particular thing, please let me know. You know, we're in this together. We have to work together, and I have to know. Uh, I said, you know, sometimes I make mistakes, and if I'm wrong, I'll apologize, and you know, we'll we'll do it another way. So we had that relationship, and uh, um, he got the burden. He's he got the vision. He caught the fire, and uh, I mean to tell you, brother, God got in that thing, and just villages kept opening up, and probably the i don't know i'm kind of hard headed but i got i got malaria i had malaria several times but i, I was just getting over a case of malaria and and uh, i went to church on wednesday night and i preached and a fellow named maya came from kundu village over the mountain and he said brother he said it's awfully hard on my wife to walk across the mountain. And I said, brother, it's hard on me to walk across the mountain too, you know. <laughs> well, that particular night it was raining and they came across the mountain in the rain on a Wednesday night for prayer meeting. I'm, I'm talking about wow. an hour over in the rain and and they're going up this muddy mountain and down the other side to the village. And so he kept asking me, won't you come to our village? I said, brother, I said, you know, uh, uh, it, it's hard on me too. He said, "Yeah, but you will understand." He said, "My wife is blind, and she comes across that mountain." My man, God just—you ever—it's like puncturing a balloon. You know, God said, "Better get over there." So we started a little church in Kundu, and and on Sundays we'd uh, we'd walk a mile and run a mile, walk a mile, and run a mile, till we got there. Because I took youth with me, and uh, Old oh, John, his old mama went up there with us, and I was whew, I short wind, you know. I'm trying to keep up with this thing. I didn't know I had a bad heart at the time, and and so I, you know, I can't. We're five thousand feet, and I can't breathe, and and so anyway, uh, come to another little mountain, and I said, God, I I said John, I said uh, uh, we need to slow down here a little bit. I said your old mama, she's, you know, she. Is, mountains are going to be hard on her <laughs> he looked at me and he said my mama's on top of there waiting for you son. She's already <laughs> up there <laughs> so anyway we started that church over there and, and um, consequently several others and uh, but I was I had this you, you, first term missionary we had this such a burden for the people and, and you're trying to uh get the gospel out as quickly as you can because I believe God could come back today. And and then that's the end. It's over. So let's get the job done, you know. So I'm working myself to death. And, you know, busy is not necessarily spiritual. And if the devil can't get you one way, he'll get you another way. So I was wearing myself out because I was preaching six and seven times on Sunday. I'm not at the same place. Wow. So... Plus, teaching Bible school, and I was the only one. Um, But uh, God just got in the work, brother. And Marsha asked me one time, uh, Marsha Farley said, uh, uh, It just seems like you're flat out. I said, Sister, I said, That's the only way I know to work. I mean, if you're going to do it, let's get it done. You know, I'm not a plotter. I'm a. Somebody said, Let's, listen, there's a village over there. Let's go. You know, that's me. And, and I said, that's just. But God blessed my ignorance and uh, gave me some good, good nationals, man. Amen. I'm friends to this day, love them to death. Um, and I couldn't have done it without them. I could not. Well, I them. guess
0: with that emphasis on church planting and as many churches as were planted in such a short period of time, a lot of your efforts were also invested, I'm sure, in preparing men to, training men to, to
1: lead those works. That's really the answer to the thing. The Apostle Paul, uh, when you read the, the New Testament, you read the book of Acts, and Jesus did the same thing. He took his disciples with him. Right. And he let them see what God could do. All right, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul did the same thing. And so I thought, okay, I'll do the same thing. So I had these, I said, anybody interested in studying the Bible? And, and uh, of course, the first night you got 30 people, but about two weeks down the road you got 10. Sure. But uh, uh, I, I would take them with me. And, and you have to invest the time uh, in training those nationals. If, if you're going to have an indigenous church, and and be a church planter. You must do that. Now in my day, they weren't educated like they are today. You know, but Chad's got guys who are high school grads and 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 all that. The guys I was teaching, uh, one of them couldn't even read. And that's another story you probably wouldn't believe. But <laughs> by the end of Bible school, he could read. And I wow. said, "How'd you learn to read?" He said, "God taught me." Wow! Whew. Praise the Lord. And preach man anyway I, so I would take these guys with me and I, I would I'd have Bible school Monday Tuesday and Wednesday morning right? Tuesday night we would I'd start these churches and I'd take the students and we'd go have uh, a service there on Tuesday night or I would send two of them and, and and they would come back and then Wednesday we'd have morning classes and then they could go back to their home villages And anyway, and that's the way it worked. She had a combination of some classroom instruction, but they're
0: actually participating in the work and doing the ministry. Yeah,
1: but uh, my teaching was different. It's not, you know, if you go to college today or go to Bible school, you've got six weeks, of New Testament one, you know, and all that. Well, you can't do that when when they don't have that 200 years of religious background. (laughs) Sure. Okay, so... uh, I was teaching basics, and I would teach it till they get it. When they get it, I move on. Okay. You couldn't just go through it. And I would have to write them. Uh, I started out by giving them paper, you know, and, and I'd, I'd put notes on the chalkboard, and, and, you know, I'd say, okay, guys, get this down. And I'd look at their papers after they're done. They might have two sentences there because they weren't used to that. Um,
0: Well, that's an important, I guess, aspect of pioneering. You're dealing with people that just, they don't know anything, and you're starting from scratch, and you can't have kind of a typical Bible Institute mentality, I'm going to take them through this many courses in this period of time.
1: Basically what we did, we did uh, talk Genesis, um, some of the Psalms. And then the rest of it was the New Testament. Sure. I touched on Revelation, but didn't get into it deep because of the culture. Because if you start talking about Revelation, that's all they'd preach on forever, you know. Um, So I taught the Gospel of Luke because it has all the parables in it, all the miracles and the parables in it. uh, uh, Acts uh all of paul's epistles and uh, anyway that 's what worked for me now sure. my guys i I, well, I describe myself as a rough carpenter okay i'll go in and fight the battles i'll get the land i'll uh start the church i will i'll do the rough work all right then a guy like Chad comes in and he's a finished carpenter. Okay. He gets the rough edges off. Now, he's got a better crop to work with than I had. Now, having said that, you know, I've got from that original first class 30-some years ago, uh, about half of them are still in the ministry. Wow. And so it's still going on. They're in little out-of-the-way places. These are no-name guys. You know, they're not going to be— Preaching at the saw the Lord conference. Sure. A lot of them don't have shoes, but they hold services three times a week, and they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. And they have missions programs. They give to missions. Wow. Yeah. What would you say
0: are some of the most um, outstanding differences culturally between the people that you are ministering to and what we would be accustomed to in America? Because you mentioned an indigenous church, and having an indigenous church in New Guinea is going to look different than it looks in America.
1: Yeah, it's you have to be careful when you turn a church over. Uh, uh, one of the things is, you know, Americans are used to electronics, you know, and <laughs> microphones and guitars. And, and uh, I didn't introduce anything to those churches that I was going to take away from them when I left. Amen. Um, so uh, whatever was there... Uh, uh, I, I, I just left it and turned that work over to a national pastor. So that's just one of the differences. But in, between America and there, uh, one thing is there's no private land. In, and, and I didn't work in town. I, I worked, all my ministry was in a bush somewhere. So you're dealing with the culture and the clan. And there's no such thing as private ownership. So when you get a piece of ground, it's just not that one individual's decision. It's a Klan decision. And so that's different. Um, The marriage thing where uh, I walked up to town one day. This is in Mount Hagen. And I had to walk by the police station. All these people were standing around. This policeman was standing there, and this man was whipping his wife with a switch. I mean, he was putting it on her. Wow. Well, you know how we've, in America, man, we'd fight over that. <laughs> sure. But she had either shamed him or said something publicly or he'd seen her with a man, and that was the punishment for it. Wow. That's hard to get used to. <laughs> um, and then when in, in the indigenous church thing is you have to let them be New Guineans. You can't force them to be Americans. Sure. If you start an American-type church, then you're never going to leave it, or when you leave it, it'll fall. Right. So when you turn the, the other thing is when you turn a church over, there's a leveling process. Um, uh, when Brother Farley retires here, there'll be a leveling process when the new pastor comes. Sure. Uh, and it's uh, uh, the best way to describe it is if you've got a daughter. And you raise her in church, and every Sunday you take her to church, and then you take her home, and you love on her, and, I mean, you're protective of her. And then one Sunday you take her to church, and she gets married and goes home with somebody else. (laughs) It's going to be different. It's different. There's an adjustment to make. Exactly. Uh, So I give missionaries the advice, don't ever start a church you're going to turn over right next door to your house. Hmm. Start it somewhere else. (laughs) Okay. Okay, Uh, a couple of reasons for that, but that way, and let, let, you know, uh, what I would do is I would start that church, I would turn, uh, train the national, turn that church over, and then I wouldn't do anything in there unless he asked me.
0: But you very often did maintain a relationship with those pastors and those churches at their request. Sure, yeah,
1: Sure. Uh, we'd have fellowships and we'd get together to help other churches out you know we were starting churches and and so we'd help this new pastor in his new church we would help him build his building so I'd get all my guys together all my pastors and you know a lot of my Christians they'd just show up to work and, and you know, we'd get a building up in a day or two so yeah well, I maintained a relationship but there was no micromanagement right. you have to let them make their mistakes and let that I'm sure that's hard to hard to do
0: sometimes well it is
1: it's harder on the wife than it is the man interesting because we under we know what's going to happen <laughs> but she's seen the blood sweat and tears you put into that work yeah you know and they start changing something And her thinking man my husband did that and we suffered for this and we gave up this and you know wow so it's different hmm. okay next question
0: well you you had the you had the, there toward the end, you had a great ministry, a tremendous, the Lord did t- tremendous things there in New Guinea, and eventually you had some health issues that were just, it was no longer practicable to, to remain on the field. How did, how did that come about?
1: Well, I had my first heart attack, my first furlough. Oh, really? So my first heart attack, I was 39 years old. Wow. And I had three bypasses done. And the doctor said, I'm not going to release you to go back to New Guinea. And I said, I didn't ask you to. I'm going back to New Guinea. <laughs> uh, then 10 years later, I had another heart attack and uh, another bypass surgery. And they did they, they re-bypassed the first bypasses and they did two more. Um, so that's three and then six and then two more is eight. And anyway... Uh, I, they said "You no way you can go back to New Guinea and uh, six months later I was back in New Guinea again uh, so I went down on the coast I worked on the coast and and uh, that's where I had the second one you know the thing that was health wise they'd always say well what's going to happen if you're in New Guinea and you have a heart attack well I was in New Guinea in the middle of the swamp living on the river And I had a heart attack. And you know what God did? I would go up the river, and I had a ministry to Chevron Oil Company Base Camp because they have oil in New Guinea, and Chevron owns the pipeline, and they kept a maintenance base about an hour up the river from me. And when I had the, I think that was the second or third heart attack, uh, they sent down an American EMT. Amazing. And took me back up there and you know it's an oil camp they live in little they call them gondolas uh, and this emt gave me his and i'm watching the, the world series on satellite tv eating better than i've ever eaten in years you know in their in their mess hall and suffering for jesus man i mean and they said we've got a helicopter on standby with double tanks if we need to get you out of here you'll be out of here so quick we'll take you all the way to australia uh, so, God takes care of his people down well, he? <laughs> I'm telling you. So, uh, anyway, uh, um, when I got that, when I went to Australia, and my cardiologist in Australia said, uh, Are you close to furlough? And I said, Yeah, pretty close. He said, Go home and have this surgery. And I said, Why? And he said, Well, uh, the first time there's so much risk, and the second time that risk doubles and he looked at my wife and he said what are you going to do with a dead body in Australia so uh, he said, and he said well, we don't do them here you have to go to Townsville and we didn't know anybody down there so I went home and, and had the surgery And anyway God just gets me through it brother and I got to the place when I had the last one because I'd come home and I'd tell the cardiologist I said uh, you know fix it doc I got to go back and so they do the bypasses, and I got home this last time, and I said, fix it, Doc. He said, I can't fix it this time. He said, this is war out. He said, the, the sheep are going to have to look after the shepherd. So that was hard. I can just imagine. Mm. Still bothers me. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we just go on. I, you know, I teach missions. I preach a few missions conferences around. I do what I can do.
0: Yeah, still still recording a radio program in Pigeon.
1: Yeah, it? yeah. I do one for Chad, and I do one in English for uh, Jason Russell. Okay. Uh, it's generally the same lesson. It's just different language. Brother Mullins
0: uh, I've I've actually both of those men Chad and Jason have been guests on this program and your your name of course comes up regularly in relation to New Guinea and so it's uh it's amazing how the how the Lord's used you in that field and uh, and not only to do what what you were able to do what God used you to do in in winning sinners and establishing churches but also to prepare another a subsequent generation of laborers to, to continue that work and uh, it, so it, despite your uh, uh, your presence here in the states things are uh, the work is pressing on in New Guinea. And, it's uh, To God be the glory.
1: <laughs> it's exciting when I you know I get uh, emails or Facebook and and uh, this church has got a missions conference and you know and 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 I always press they'd say, well, let's get this missionary here to preach. I said, no, well, let's get Pastor so to a national pastor, let him get in here and preach. That's what this is all about. We're not, we're not here to do it for you. We're here to, for you all to do it. And, and um, it's just exciting to see the work go on. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's, it's not all my work. I just a, a little spoke in the wheel, but God allowed us to be a part of it. Amen. And it was exciting and and, uh, still exciting to come down here and see these young men, you know, these young families and and yourself. And you'll be going uh, to Africa. So, yeah, God's able, brother. He can do that. Amen. Amen. Well,
0: Brother Mullins, I really appreciate you sitting down for the conversation. And uh, thank you for your years of service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And appreciate you sharing a little bit of that with us today on the program.
1: Amen. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: God is able. That's an appropriate way to wind up this conversation with missionary Ted Mullins, seeing as his life and ministry is a testimony to the fact that God is able. There were many good takeaways from this conversation with Brother Ted, including his approach to training men there in Papua New Guinea. Teach the basics until they get it. It would be easy to take a Western or an American form and order of training and seek to impose that upon first generation believers in some remote village, but it wouldn't work very well. I also think it's a wise policy that he adopted in not giving to the national brethren anything that he would take away when he withdrew. But above all, perhaps the most important takeaway from this conversation was the parting one, God is able. If you'd like to learn more about Ted and Lynn Mullen's years of service in P&G, Mrs. Lynn has written two books chronicling their efforts, the first of those is My Stories from New Guinea, the Wiru tribe, and the second, more recent volume is the Kokori Years, Papua New Guinea 1994 to 2000. I'll leave their email address in the program description if you'd like to contact them and obtain one or both of those volumes. I appreciate you tuning in today. You can subscribe to this program on a variety of different podcasting platforms, and if it's been a blessing to you, please feel free to invite others to tune in. I also always welcome your feedback. You can contact me, Brother Lee, by email at Conversations at gmail.com. Until next time, let's do what we can to preach the gospel in the regions beyond.